0: You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. We have been uh, walking through a series entitled The Kingdom What It Means. And we've uh, defined the kingdom as being the community or territory over which Christ reigns as king. And the purpose of this particular series is to kind of answer that question what does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom? What does that mean for us? What is normative for us? What should life look like as citizens in the kingdom of heaven? And so uh, the past couple of weeks, I kind of put this kingdom thing within the framework of what we call the sacred story. And I know there's a couple of you out there who are thinking the sacred story again, really, again. And the answer is yes, again. And the reason, yes again, is because if our vision as a church is to cultivate a loving community of Christians with a biblical worldview, and it is, then part of having a biblical worldview is knowing the sacred story. And if our mission as a church is equipping the saints, edifying others, and expanding the kingdom through evangelism, well, a healthy part of evangelism and part of being a good And effective evangelist is being able to share the sacred story with others and explain to people where we fit into the sacred story. So, to the sacred story. and Take good notes because there's going to be a test afterwards. (coughs) I'm just kidding about that part. But do pay attention because this is important. This is something that we need to get and that's why I'm reiterating it for the third week in a row so we've likened the sacred story which we find in the Bible this here is our sacred story we've likened it to a two-act play essentially saying that the Old Testament is Act 1 the New Testament is Act 2 and the neat thing about the Bible about our sacred story about this divine drama is that Act 2 is really a retelling of Act 1, with Jesus embodying the fulfillment, the spiritual antitype, the reality that was foreshadowed in Act 1. All right, it's really neat in that way. In other words, it's the same story retold in Christ. So in Act 1, we've got this storyline unfolding. And it begins with God choosing a people to be his very own treasured possession, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God made a promise to the nation of Israel. He made a promise to his chosen people to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. Well, as in any good story, there's a conflict. And that conflict happens when God's chosen people are not entering into this land, but they're enslaved in Egypt. They're in bondage. Uh Uh-oh, trouble. But God is a faithful God. He is a covenant keeper. He does what he says he will do. When he says he will do it, and as he promised after 400 years enslaved to that nation, he delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brought wrath on the Egyptians who had them enslaved. He brought them out of Egypt, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered into the promised land and received it as their inheritance. That's kind of where the story meets its climax. Well, we see that recapitulated, retold in Act 2. Act 2 begins with God redefining his covenant people in Christ. There is a new Israel being formed, defined not by race, but by grace. And we find that this spiritual Israel is enslaved by a spiritual Egypt, which is explicitly stated in Revelation 11:8 as Jerusalem. So their very own people <coughs> had, had the, the Israelites enslaved in bondage under the heavy yoke of the law as the religious leaders, selfish as they were, were wielding their power in such a way as to enslave the people and kind of press them down, hold them down, oppressing the poor, oppressing the marginalized, the widow, the fatherless, the alien. And so God does another exodus, another Passover lamb's blood is spilt in order to redeem his people out of that slavery. And so for 40 years, there's another time of wandering in the wilderness, another transition period from slavery to freedom. And then in 70 AD, God's new, true, spiritual Israel enters into the new <laughs> promised land, the spiritual land, the heavenly kingdom, and receive that as their inheritance. So uh, turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 16. And I want to kind of point out where we see in the scriptures this kind of clear line of demarcation between these two acts. And if we're able to kind of draw a dividing line between these two acts, act one and act two, John the Baptist seems to be that line. Okay? So... If you're in the New Testament. First book there is Matthew, and then you've got Mark, and then you've got Luke. We're in Luke 16. And we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Just doing this to kind of build some framework, because we're going to ultimately end up in Matthew 5. But Luke 16, 16 and 17, I'm reading out of the New International Version. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Referring to John the Baptist. Since that time... The good news, a.k.a. the gospel, of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Okay, so here we've got Jesus saying, hey, until John came, the law and the prophets were proclaimed. The law is the kind of the first five books of the Bible. The prophets are all those lengthy books that nobody ever knows what the heck they're talking about because they're all metaphoric and apocalyptic and crazy. And those are all those books from Isaiah to Malachi. But that was essentially what Jesus was saying here is what they saw as the scriptures essentially was what we see as the Old Testament. It wasn't old to them. It was the Testament. Their scriptures. That was proclaimed until John. That which was written in the law. That which is ascribed to Moses, and that which was foretold and proclaimed by the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Malachi, all those guys. That was proclaimed until John. Since that time, since John came, the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, and everyone's forcing their way into it. So we've got kind of Jesus making some connections here. Alright? Act one, the word of the day, the proclamation of the day, law and the prophets. That was the preaching of the day. Since John, Act 2, the kingdom is the word of the day. The good news of the kingdom is the word of the day. The gospel of the kingdom is the word of the day. So, I know all analogies break down somewhere, so don't get too hung up on trying to find you know, the loophole here. Just go with me with this illustration. For the sake of illustration, let's just say that the intermission of this two-act divine drama... Was that time between the prophet Malachi and about 400 B.C. to the time John the Baptist shows up on the scene 400 years later? Let's just call that intermission. A lot of scholars out there call that um, the time of God's silence or the silent period. A time when Israel hadn't heard from a prophet in some time and they're thinking, okay, what's going on here? Where, where's God? What's going on? Is, is he going to fulfill the promises that he made in the law and the prophets? And so it was a, a time of silence. That was intermission. Now, the Baptist shows up on the scene and says, Okay, lights out, curtains open, get off Facebook, hurry up and get back to your seats. Act 2 is about to begin. And it begins with the proclamation of the gospel. It begins with the preaching of repentance. Repent of your sins because the kingdom of heaven is near. And John recapitulates this defining of a covenant community. Okay, As I said, Act 1 opens up with God saying, I'm choosing Israel to be my treasured possession, to be my chosen people. John comes on the scene to those Israelites and he says, Don't think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you the truth. God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. In other words... Your ethnicity, your race, doesn't just automatically make you a part of the kingdom of God like you think it does. It doesn't. God was redefining his chosen people, and he was redefining Israel as those who were believers in Christ. So John says, look wrath is coming. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Whatever tree does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You need to get on point with God because the kingdom is near. So, John comes on the scene, and it may be tempting to think that John's kind of starting this completely different thing, totally detached from the law and the promise, totally detached from act one. It may be tempting to think that we're talking about an entirely new play altogether. we got Jesus and John the Baptist. on so am seeing this whole brand new, completely different thing is going on. We started out with Midsummer Night's Dream, but now all of a sudden we're doing Macbeth. Not the case. If we started out with Midsummer Night's Dream... We're still doing Midsummer Night's Dream. It's only Act 2 of Midsummer Night's Dream. And we're about to find out who emerges the hero. We're going to have conflict resolution. Everybody's going to live happily ever after. This is Act 2 of the same play. Not a different play. There's a lot of people that want to kind of dichotomize this whole thing and say, well, there was this God of the Old Testament, and he was a real jerk. He was really mean. He told his people to, like, kill people. He was just really harsh. He had no grace. And then we've got this completely different thing going on where Jesus comes. He's really nice. Have you read the Gospels if you think Jesus was just really nice? He said some pretty harsh things. There's a continuity going on here. It's the same play. It's just act two of the same play. I think you get the picture by now. Let's go into Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll um, pick up where we left off last week. And this particular passage of Scripture is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Because we've got Jesus preaching a sermon... The on the Mount, okay? So there's, it's a clever name, I know. Um, I can't take credit for it. I, I saw it in the headings in my Bible, so that's, you know. And the reason that we're camping out here on the Sermon on the Mount in this particular series of what it means is this. It's important to recognize where we are in the sacred story. It's important to recognize where the Sermon on the Mount fits into the sacred story. A huge component part of the sacred story is the law of Moses. That was um, uh, the commands, the ordinances, the institution by which Israel, God's chosen people, were to conduct themselves in the land. So, in the wilderness, when they were wandering through the wilderness looking forward to entering the land, God gave Moses the law to give to Israel. Hey, when you guys enter the land, live like this. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't defraud your neighbor, don't have any other gods except Jehovah, don't have idols, yada, 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 yada. Well, when we look at Act 2, when we look at Jesus, the new Moses, going up on a mountain to give God's new people a sermon commands by which they are to live in the kingdom to come, we see essentially that Jesus is here giving the new law for life in the new land for God's new covenant people. So to give you big picture, Sermon on the Mount is essentially the description of what is normative for life in the kingdom. Now, granted, we've already seen that Jesus is talking to a first-century Jewish audience, and there are some things that he says that will pertain only to his original audience, some things that we can't expect to apply to ourselves today. We've already kind of looked at some of those. We'll see some more of those to come. But a lot of what Jesus says has application for you and I and future generations in the kingdom for all time. Okay? So that's why we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Last week we went through verse 16, and this morning we're going to pick up in verse 17 and go through verse 20 and kind of unpack that and uh, see how that pertains to life in the kingdom. So Jesus says, beginning verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In case you thought maybe I was here doing a new thing, it's still Midsummer Night's Dream. It's not Macbeth. It's not Hamlet. Still the same thing. I'm fulfilling this. Still part of this. Don't think I came to just push, abolish that. Came to fulfill it. Verse 18 I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven all right so let's kind of walk walk through these verses Now, admittedly, this is one of the passages in the Bible that a lot of people would like to just gloss right over. It's a passage that a lot of people have a a very hard time dealing with. Because what we will find this morning in this passage is we're going to find some things that appear to be contradictions. Some things that may challenge our paradigm a little bit. And we just have to be honest and deal with them head on. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So, as we said, Jesus... Begins here. Don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Why do you think that he would feel the need to say, "Hey, don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets." Well, between him and John, they were some, saying some pretty radical things that had the people of the day going, um, "Things are changing around here. Is he? It is so? Are, what do you? So Jesus, said, hey, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Act two, same play. Okay. Now it's easy for us to embrace. I think. Jesus' fulfillment of the descriptive elements of the law. Okay, What I mean by that is in contrast to the prescriptive elements. Okay, There's descriptive elements in the law that Jesus came to fulfill that we've already looked at before. And all of the various types and shadows, Jesus being the anti-type, the fulfillment, the spiritual reality. One of those, for just a brief example, is in the Old Testament... In Act 1, we've got the Passover lamb, this lamb that was to be a male without defect, don't break any of its legs, shed its blood, spread that blood over your doorpost, and then that very night, the angel of God, the, the wrath of God, will go through Egypt and destroy all of the firstborns of Egypt, his wrath will be poured out on the Egyptians, but for those who are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb, you will be passed over. God's wrath will pass over you. You will be spared. You will be saved. You will be redeemed, rescued, ransomed. You're good. So you want to be covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. Well, here we've got um, Act 2 opening up with John going, See that guy right there, Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You've got 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7b where Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we've got this Descriptive element within the law, within the law of Moses, of a Passover lamb event, Jesus fulfills that descriptive Passover lamb event. We're good with stuff like that. We're good with stuff like that. But when it comes to the prescriptive elements of the law, it's kind of like, okay, what about those? What about those 613 or so commandments, those thou shalt and those thou shalt nots? Because we're good as long as Jesus is talking about not abolishing the law, but fulfilling the law in terms of descriptive. But what about prescriptive? If, if, if that's still happening, kind of deal with that. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Does it make you a little bit uncomfortable? He says in verse 18, I tell you the truth, until... Heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will, by any means, disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices them and teaches them will be great. Okay, he went there. He went there. He's he's talking about the kingdom. And he's talking about the commandments. He's talking about the prescriptive elements in the law. Okay, he went there. And he's doing so in terms of great commands and least commands. Okay, I don't know really how to say which command is great and which one's least, but I'm just going to, for the sake of illustration, let's just say those famous ten, those famous ten commandments, let's just say those are great commandments, just for the sake of illustration. I think we're probably all pretty good with... (laughs) Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not um, commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. We're probably all good with having no gods before Jehovah. We're probably good with those. But what about the least of these commandments? Because Jesus said, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Let's just hypothetically talk about some least commandments. Have you ever read through the book of Leviticus? Leviticus. Let's just say, for the sake of illustration, maybe we can find some least of these commandments in Leviticus. Leviticus 19:19. 19, 19, Do not wear clothing woven of two different materials. You practice that commandment? Let's just call it least. You practice the least of these commandments? I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing at least at least one of you in here has a cotton polyester t-shirt. Guilty. Leviticus 19:27. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. You follow that least command? (laughs) Chris is good. (laughs) Hey, good. Uh, Is everybody in here following that that least command? Jesus said, whoever does not practice the least of these commands and teaches others not to do it will be called least in the kingdom. Leviticus 19.28, do not put tattoo marks on yourselves. Ever broken that least command? <clears throat> what do we do here? What do we do with this? Because it seems like Jesus is saying, all right, don't think I came to abolish the law until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen in the law, a jot or a tittle, none of it's going to pass away until everything is accomplished. Whoever practices these commands will be great in the kingdom. But whoever does not practice these commands will be called least in the kingdom. Okay, that sounds like for those of us who are in the kingdom, we need to be practicing every single bit of the law of Moses. That's what it sounds like at first glance, right? Well, you may be thinking, well, yeah, we need to I mean, the Bible says what it means and means what it says. We need to be obedient as Christians and follow Jesus. And if Jesus said we need to obey the least of these commands, by golly, we need to follow the least of these commands. No more breakfast at Mickey D's. No more sausage, egg, and cheese, you know, McMuffins. No, I need to clean out my closet. I mean, throw out the clippers. You know, uh, we need to get on point. We need to get on point with what Jesus is saying. But on the other hand, maybe, maybe you're intimately familiar with the scriptures, and you're like, okay, dude, hang on, because the same Bible from which we're reading this text here with Jesus saying, follow these commands, we've got this guy Paul over here writing to churches um, in Galatia saying things like, um, if you're trying to follow the law, you're under a curse. No one is going to be justified by observing the law. Let me just read you an excerpt from the same Bible, this this same same God-inspired text. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, "...you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law, or by believing what you heard?" Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you a spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And the implication there is because you believe what you heard, not because you observe the law. And then it goes on in verse 10. He says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. Okay? So, it sounds like we've got a contradiction here. Jesus is saying, Hey, observe the law, even the least of these commands. You'll be great in the kingdom. You've got Paul <coughs> telling people, don't follow the least of these. In fact, Paul gets crazy. Okay? If there's least and there's great, one of the great is circumcise your male sons on the eighth day. If you were a male and you were a Jew and you were a part of the covenant community, you need to circumcise the flesh. That's a great one. That's a big deal to them. That's one of their identifying markers as God's covenant community people. And what does he tell the Galatians? Hey, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you're cut off from Christ. What? Cut off from Christ? Christ is the one who is saying that I need to obey everything written in the law, even the least of them. So we've got this apparent contradiction going on here. How can we reconcile these seemingly contradictory ideas? Or should we just go, you know what? Jesus contradicts Paul. We can't really trust his writings um, or, or... Paul contradicts Jesus. We can't trust Paul's writings. Either way, we can trust one, but not the other. But we can't trust both because you can't have it both. How, how are we going to wrestle through this? Okay. Now, I'm going to propose to you that a lot of this hinges on how we interpret Jesus' words in Matthew 5 when he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away... Not the smallest letter with a least least stroke of a pen will, by any means, disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That one verse right there, I think. I think we have a tendency of coming to these passages as 21st century Americans with our own presuppositional lenses and our own ideas about what Jesus has to mean here, and then our interpretation hinges upon that. And you know, have you ever like? Try to follow a, a course. You know, you, you got this destination, and, and, and if you walk the perfect path, you'll get there. But if if you're off by like one degree, and you go off that way, I mean, the, you will end up way far off. So I think right here in this one verse, if 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 we can interpret that right, I think think we'll be on the right course here. Mm-hmm. Let me begin by saying. There's no way that I can cover all of the important components to explaining this this morning. We've already done that. We did a series on uh, the passing away of heaven and earth and the new heavens and the new earth. And so I would encourage you, if what I'm saying to you this morning is either crazy, um, David's lost it, this sounds just off the wall, I would encourage you, grab one of these discs. Take it home, listen to it. Um, I present way more information in here than you're going to get this morning. This morning you're going to get one of these. <sighs> okay? Just kind of brief bullet point ideas as to why there's a problem with forcing a strict literal interpretation of the passing away of heaven and earth. Okay? For starters, the same Bible in Ecclesiastes 1.4 and in Psalm 104.5 just to name a few, says that the earth will remain forever. How can the earth remain forever and Jesus come along and say, heaven and earth will pass away? That's a contradiction, unless we're not necessarily to take that literally. Okay? So in case you're tempted to think this is crazy brand new idea that David's just pulling out of nowhere, who knows? This is not new, okay? In your bulletin, on the inside leaf, um, I put just a couple of quotes. I could give you a gazillion of these, okay? Um, From men in previous centuries, great men of God who are respected in the theological world. Um, Just put a couple of them here. If these names mean nothing to you, um, I suggest you Google them and get to know them because uh, they're heroes of the faith. Um, to quote Jonathan Edwards, reading um, from the from the top of the insert here in the bulletin, the gospel state is everywhere spoken of as a renewed state of things, wherein old things are passed away and all things become new. He also says the scriptures further teach us to call the gospel restoration. Remember, until John came, the well, law and the prophets were proclaimed. Until uh, since that time. The good news or gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed. Jonathan Edwards says, The scripture teaches to call the gospel restoration and redemption a creation of a new heaven and a new earth. You catch that? That's powerful. I mean, here we are, assuming that Jesus has to be talking about the burning up of the third rock from the sun to be superseded by a new third rock from the sun. Jonathan Edwards, a few hundred years ago, says, "Nah, the Bible's talking about like the kingdom. The Bible's talking about the gospel, when it says new heavens and new earth. That's a new covenant order, not a new planet. Okay? Um, to quote my favorite theologian of all time, C.H. Spurgeon, "Love the man, He says, did you ever regret the absence of the burnt offering or the red heifer or any of those sacrifices and rites of the Jews? Did you ever find for the the feast of tabernacle or the dedication? No, because though these were like (laughs) the old heavens and earth to the Jewish believers, they had passed away. And we now live under a new heavens and a new earth. So far as the dispensation of divine teaching is concerned, the substance has come, and the shadow is gone, and we do not remember it. Wow! That Old Testament, the Act 1, and all of its various types and shadows, that was the old heavens and earth, and it's passed away. And the new heavens and earth is now here in the gospel, in the new covenant order. So we need to think, I believe, in terms of covenant, not in terms of planet, when we're talking about the passing away of heaven and earth and the supersession of that old heaven and earth with a new heaven and earth. We're talking about covenant, not planet, I believe. So, again, bottom line, problem with the literal, right? And, And that may be hard for you, but you do it elsewhere, right? When you when you face in the scriptures a problem with the literal, are you not forced to look to other methods of interpretation? I mean, you know, when you have a problem with Jesus photosynthesizing, then you've got to look for another explanation of John 15, 5, other than Jesus is literally a vine. Hmm. That's a metaphor. Yeah. If you run into problems, and if maybe you've got ethical or moral problems with the idea of going the cannibalistic vampire route, then maybe you need to explore other options of interpretation with regard to Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Because that's kind of gross. It's not literal. It's like metaphor. If you run into trouble with... In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Don't really feel like trying to crawl back in your mother's womb and come out again. You need to maybe explore another option other than the literal. That's like spiritual. So when we run into problems with a literal method of interpretation, whether it's because we compare scripture with scripture and see other scripture contradicting our literal interpretation, or because context demands that it's not literal, we need to look outside of the literal. We need to be okay with saying, I'm okay with that not being literal. Okay? So when we compare scripture with scripture, in the case of the passing away of heaven and earth, we have to conclude that we're not talking about the planet being burned to a crisp and being superseded by another planet. Okay? talking about covenants, okay? Now, um, if you want to kind of nail down this idea of what does heavens represent, what does earth represent, um, I give some ideas in here, um, give a lot more quotes than I just gave this morning. Um, Let me kind of append that. This is Appendix A to those teachings, all right? We've already looked at um, (coughs) the idea of, in the scriptures, when we see The earth perhaps and most often a better rendering of that is the land and in the scriptures the land has significance we're talking about the promised land of Israel okay now when we talk about the heavens the heavens are God's dwelling that's where God dwelleth okay where did God dwelleth in the old covenant order in act 1 in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Okay? So when we talk about the passing away of the heavens, we're talking about the passing away of God's dwelling place, aka the temple. And when we're talking about the passing away of the earth, we're talking about the passing away of the land, aka Israel. Okay? So when Israel and the temple are dissolved, when they pass away, when they're done away with, when they are burned to a crisp, per second, Peter 3, and then superseded by a new heaven and earth, Revelation 1, verses 1 through 4. We're not talking the planet. We're talking Israel and the temple. We're talking Jerusalem. We're talking that which pertained to the old covenant order. When we're talking about a new heaven and earth, we're talking about a new holy of holies in a new temple made not of brick and stone and wood, but made up of living stones with a foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Where does God dwell right now? Is he not in you if you're a believer? You and me are part of the new heavens and the new earth. There is a new land. The Jerusalem of old, the geographically defined Israel, was destroyed. And we are now a part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly land, the heavenly kingdom. So when? When did that occur? When did that old order pass away? Well, it's tempting to think that it passed away at the cross. We'll deal with that a little bit more in a little while. But I propose to you that it passed away in 70 AD. And me me explain to you why. Um, Go ahead and turn with me to Luke 21. We touched on this. We looked at this last week. And so hopefully it's kind of fresh on your brains. But I want to look at it in the context of the passing away of heaven and earth this morning. Because we're going to get a time indicator when we look at this. Because if we're going to interpret the passing away of heaven and earth... In the Sermon on the Mount, as the passing away of Israel and the temple and the destruction thereof, <clears throat> let's kind of flesh that out a little bit and see how how that's manifest, when it's manifest. And in Luke 21, we will begin in uh, verse 20. And and as we do this, let me remind you, there are two conditional statements. In the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says the law will not pass away. Two conditionals, two untils. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, that's the first one, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means pass from the law, until, number two until, number two conditional, everything is accomplished. Until everything is accomplished. So when everything is accomplished and when heaven and earth pass away, that's when you can stop worrying about the commands, the prescriptive elements of the law. Until then, do them and teach them, lest you be least in the kingdom. All right? So when Jesus says, until everything is accomplished, does he mean like everything, everything? Because I'm not done raising my children. That hasn't been accomplished yet. We're not done with this sermon series. That hasn't been accomplished yet. We're not done figuring out what the heck we're doing, having church in here and the kids in there. That hasn't been accomplished yet. So when Jesus says, until everything is accomplished, does he mean like everything, everything, everything? No, I believe that he means everything written in the law and the prophets. Everything that was written and foretold in the Old Testament, in Act 1. Okay? So, Luke 21, beginning in verse 20, Jesus is telling first century Jews, "...when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains... Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. Okay? So, Jesus says, alright, obey these commands until everything's accomplished. What does he mean by everything's accomplished? Everything that is written. Written where? In their scriptures. What does Jesus say about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies and laid waste and desolate? He says that that is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. In other words, that's the time when everything will be accomplished. He says how dreadful. It will be in those days, verse 23, for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Can you imagine trying to like get out of a city that was being uh, besieged if you were like pregnant or nursing? I mean, it's hard to go to Six Flags if you're pregnant or nursing. <laughs> you're trying to get up out of Jerusalem during the time of the feast, and Rome is like laying waste. It, uh, that would be bad news. There will be great distress in the land, earth, land, Jerusalem. Great distress in the land and wrath against this people. Yeah, wrath is coming. The axe is already laid at the root. Don't think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. You guys have been bad. and Wrath is coming. Okay, They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When? When is this supposed to happen? Well, he tells them... When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, number one, it wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense if Jesus was having a conversation with his peeps 2,000 years ago. And he said, hey, when you guys see the page house and you see cars out front, you'll know that New Covenant Fellowship is happening. <laughs> Nor would it make a whole lot of sense for Jesus to tell his peeps 2,000 years ago, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its destination is near don't go get stuff just go when he really meant like 2,000 years later something was going down okay and we have this made more clear if you skip down to verse 32 Jesus says I tell you the truth this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened so and the lifetime of Jesus's contemporaries is when the heavens, temple and the earth land were destroyed. How was it manifest? By the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by the Romans because when we look back through the corridors of history, we know that the Jews revolted against Rome in about 66 AD. The Romans came to put down that revolt and in the process three and a half years later Jerusalem and its temple destroyed, laid waste, desolate. Heaven and earth passed away. And if you read the next verse, it connects the dots for us. Verse 33: Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, again, gonna have a problem with the literal interpretation because if you didn't come to abolish that which was written, and that which was written Ecclesiastes 1:4 and Psalm 104:5 says that the earth will endure forever, and you're saying that the earth will not endure forever, but it's gonna pass away. Gonna have a problem with the literal. Okay, so we need to explore other options, and this makes beautiful sense. This harmonizes the Bible so well when you understand the passing of heaven and earth in these terms. It makes so much of Jesus as a true prophet of God. It makes so much of the Bible not as this hooky, contradictory It's been, you know, screwed up by humans, all kinds of, you know, whatever you want to say. No, it makes sense of the scriptures as being cohesive, coherent, and true. So back in the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to turn back to Matthew 5, that's where we'll kind of camp out here. And with that understanding, we'll kind of process through what Jesus is saying here in light of the kingdom. So again, verse 17. Hey, don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Came to fulfill. You get it. At 2, same play. Not doing away with. It's not Macbeth. It's still Midsummer Night's Dream. We're good. Okay. We're good with the descriptive. But what about the prescriptive? Well, if the prescriptive was only to be intact until heaven and earth passed away, until all was accomplished, and all was accomplished and heaven and earth passed away in 70 A.D. All those oh gosh, I need to clean out my closet, and I can't have Mickey D's for breakfast. No worries, right? Right? That kind of clears clears up those kind of troublesome thoughts that maybe you and I were thinking about earlier, right? From 70 AD, from that point forward, that old covenant order passed away and the law of Moses that pertained to that old covenant order was no longer binding on God's covenant people. They no longer were to follow the least of these commands or the broad strokes. Verse 19. Again, Jesus said, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of them. They were to practice it until... They, the Jews, to whom Jesus was speaking, had been under the law of Moses, as had their ancestors for 1,500 years, and they were to continue to operate accordingly. They weren't to stop until until the temple was destroyed, until Jerusalem was destroyed, until 70 AD (coughs) at the end of the (coughs) uncovered age. Now, uh, we looked last week at Jesus' words in Matthew 23, where he said uh, all kinds of woes to the Pharisees. In the midst of that... Jesus said, hey, listen to the Pharisees. Do what they say because they sit in Moses' seat. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. Right? Now, consider this. Earlier I mentioned that it's tempting to think that the Old Covenant ended at the cross. It's tempting to think, oh, Jesus shed his blood. New, just, boom. Clear line of demarcation. Old covenant here. New covenant from the cross forward. And it's just simple as pie. It's not that simple. I believe we've got an overlap of the ages. We've got a transition period where new covenant comes on the scene, but old covenant still intact. Still binding on Israel until until everything is accomplished. Because... Consider it this way. When Jesus and John the Baptist proclaim in the same fashion as the prophets of old, hey, you have broken the law, and based on that covenant, according to Deuteronomy 28, hey, if you obey the law, you'll be blessed. You'll have lots of babies, you'll have lots of rain, you'll have lots of crops, you'll have victory in war. But if you disobey, which you will, if you disobey... I'm going to shut up the skies, you're not going to have rain, you're not going to have crops, and you will certainly not have victory anymore. In fact, they will come and destroy you. If that is a stipulation of the Old Covenant, and if that's a part of that legally binding contract between God and Israel under the Old Covenant order, then is God really justified in going, Okay, cross ends Old Covenant, But you know what? I'm still going to exact covenant wrath according to the terms of that covenant after that covenant's over. No? Like, I used to have phone service with AT&T. I had a legally binding contract with them. They let me do these things. Text, email, talk, play games. And I pay them. Give them money. Well, a few years ago... Uh, the bests were very gracious and allowed us to hang out with them on their Sprint contract. So now, I'm no longer bound by the AT&T contract. Now, I'm in contract with Sprint, a legally binding contract whereby I talk on the phone, I text, I email, and I pay Sprint. Can AT&T come to me now and go, hey dude, where's my money? They, like owe us. No, I'm no longer bound by the terms of that contract. They can't come and expect money from me if we're not in contract anymore. Sprint can. So if the terms of the old covenant contract were over at the cross, how can God still be expecting the Jews to obey the law and pouring out covenant wrath based on the terms of that contract if that contract's over? Because it wasn't. It wasn't over until heaven and earth passed away. It wasn't an over, over until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. Now, if that's not convincing enough to you, take a look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. If you want to turn there, you can, but be <laughs> quick, because I'm going to jump in and out of that and back into Matthew 5. But Hebrews 8, 13 says, and think about this for just a quick second, who was Hebrews written to? I'm going to give you a hint. It starts with a he, and it ends with a bruise. To Hebrews, to those who were under that old covenant, right? Look what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8.13. Now, this was written after the cross, like 30 years or so. And this was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This was written in the early 60s. And look what he says in the early 60s. He says, by calling in verse... 13, Hebrews 8, 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Like the heavens and earth will soon disappear. Okay. He says, by calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete. So, yeah, the cross, the shedding of the blood, that rendered the old covenant obsolete. Those things are like types and shadows. Uh, that's not really ultimate. That's not really the thing. New covenants here, and that's awesome. This is really lame in comparison. It's obsolete now, but still intact. Hasn't yet disappeared. Hadn't yet passed away. It was still intact. The author of Hebrew says, by calling this first uh, this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete? What is Obsolete. The Old Covenant, yeah. The Old Covenant is aging and will soon disappear. And with a matter of years, it did. With the passing away of heaven and earth, with the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. Alright, so back to Matthew 5. I'm going to wrap this thing up. Sort of. So in verse 19, Jesus says Whoever breaks one of the least of these and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. Heaven? Um, question mark. If the Jews were supposed to be following and teaching the least of these, what about Paul? Okay, I was just kidding about Matthew five. Turn to Galatians five. Look at Galatians five. Now I already preached an entire sermon series through Galatians, so i um, not going to do that again this morning because ain't nobody got time for that. So <laughs> we are going to uh, kind of just briefly touch on this. And if you want more on Galatians, I would encourage you to go online, www.ncfgeorgetown.com. Download the messages. Um, I think you will be blessed by them because uh, that is a fascinating book that puts a lot of meat on this morning's bones. In Galatians 5, Paul says, It is for freedom... That Christ has set us free. You catching that? You catching that part of the sacred story? The exodus out of slavery, out of this spiritual Egypt? Christ has set us free. Okay? Throw that out there. Sacred story is important. Knowing our place in the sacred story is important. He says, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Um, if I let myself be circumcised, wait, dude, uh, Christ will be of no value to me? The same Christ that said that you must practice and teach the least of these, and you're telling me not to practice the great of these? What? What? Is Paul going to be called least in the kingdom? Because he's telling others not to practice. Not just the least of these, but the greatest of these. The big one circumcision. It's like everything. Maybe Paul didn't get the memo about the new cover sheets for the TPS reports. <laughs> Circumcision's a broad stroke, not a jot or a tittle, the least stroke of a pen. It's big. And Paul's saying, don't do it. But Jesus said, hey, do it until heaven and earth pass away. Paul, a Jew, not practicing, teaching others not to practice, what's he doing here? He says, verse 3, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. Now, oftentimes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, this whole pass away of heaven and earth and the law is still intact and we have got to obey these commands, a lot of people want to go this route. Well, see, um, what we need to do is recognize that the law has these different component parts. There's these different types of law, okay? There's a ceremonial aspect to it and a civil aspect to it and a moral aspect to it. See, what Christ means here in Matthew 5, he means that the ceremonial and the civil are gone. We're certainly not going to, you know, sacrifice goats anymore, done. We're not going to, you know, like, you know, eat. Pork, you know, I know, we still eat pork, I guess, because you know it's whatever. But um, you know, we're not going to do the ceremonial and the civil stuff, but the moral stuff, like the the murder, that's still not good, adultery's still not good, stealing's not good, lying's not good, the moral things. Well, where do you draw the line there? Who am I to draw the lines in the law and say this part's ceremonial, this part's civil? Do I have the right to do that? Does the law ever do that within itself? Did Moses ever say, hey, just want to let y'all know, this Paul right here is ceremonial. <laughs> this Paul right here is going <will> to be moral. <laughs> no. Don't, if, if God said do it or don't do it, whether it's ceremonial or civil or not, is it not moral? If God commanded it? And Paul right here in his letter to the Galatians, who are really struggling with this whole thing of the law and its place, he says... If you let yourself be circumcised, you're obligated to obey the whole law. Okay? The law is an all or nothing proposition. You can't just pick and choose little parts of it that you want to do and parts that you want to ignore. It's a unit, either law or not law. You can't just do parts of it, right? He says, you who are trying to be justified by law, verse 4, have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Wait a minute. Wait. The cross already happened, right? Jesus already shed his blood. Didn't they already have the righteousness for which they hoped? until the end of the age, not until heaven and earth passed away, not until the kingdom was fully consummated, not until the new covenant order was fully established and the old had fully passed away. Verse 6, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So back to our question. How can we have Jesus saying obey the law and his commands and Paul saying don't obey the law and commands? Forget forget about the least. Don't even do the great. How can we have these diametrically opposed ideas? Audience. Audience is the key to unlocking this supposed contradiction here. Who was Jesus talking to? Jesus was talking to Jews who were under the law of Moses already. And he was telling them that they were to continue to obey the terms of the contract that they had made with God until that contract was over in 70 AD. Paul was writing to, let me give you a hint, he wasn't the apostle to the Jews, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, those outside of Israel. That's who Paul was writing to. And they were never under the law. And so Paul was explaining to them, now's not the time to start. Do you you hear about a company that's going bankrupt and say, I'm going to try to get in on that stock? (laughs) No. You find out about the company that's on the up and up, that's brand new, price of the stock is low, but it's going to endure forever. You get in on that, you get in on it early, and you invest in that. So Paul is telling the Galatians, these Gentiles... Now's not the time to invest in Moses. It's time to invest in Jesus. It's not time to invest in Act 1 and the Law and the Prophets. It's time to invest in the Kingdom. Because the Kingdom endureth forever. Forever. Invest in that. Now's not the time to put yourself under the yoke of the Law and the burden of that kind of slavery. It's about to pass away. Soon. Now's not the time to do that. So... To wrap it all up. We are able to understand, I believe, this passage of scripture that is very enigmatic. This passage of scripture that if we're going to try to take literally, we're going to run into problems. But if we understand the heavens is God's dwelling, and that being the temple, and the earth is being the land, and that being Jerusalem, Israel. And seeing that as passing away in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem, which was, according to Jesus... The fulfillment of all that was written, not a problem. At that point, God's covenant community made up of believing Jews and Gentiles as one body in Christ, not bound by the law of Moses, the great or the least commands. That law is a unit and not bound by any of that law, but rather bound by the law of Christ bound by the law and the rules and regulations of the king and his royal law of love. So I want to uh, encourage you this morning. I know that something like this, very deep, maybe very intellectual, very informative, very theological in nature, um, we've got real life needs. We've got work, and we've got bills, and we've got family that have problems, and we've got concerns, and so a message like this doesn't really touch on those kinds of needs. But I do want to encourage you that a message like this does lay a theological foundation and a grid and give us a biblical worldview through which we can interpret other scripture And can live our life. Because here's the deal. I encourage you guys to read the Bible on your own. I encourage you guys to be Marines. I encourage you guys to go and search the scriptures to see if the things that I'm saying are true. Because this isn't a church where we say the pastor said so. And that's all there is to it. Okay? Search the scriptures. Read the scriptures. If you read this passage on your own, as we pointed out in the beginning, it's easy to walk away from it thinking, okay. Law of Moses, binding for those in the kingdom. Got to follow even the least of these. So we can walk away going, ah, don't have to clean out the closet, don't have to watch what I eat as far as righteousness before God is concerned. I need to watch what we eat as far as health is concerned. That's another issue. But, but we can walk away because... What we want to know is what is normative for life in the kingdom. We want to know what is pleasing to God, don't we? If if we want to love God and love our neighbor, which I think we do, part of loving God is obeying God. Finding out what pleases Him and doing it. I mean, that's how you express love to people. I express love to my wife by going, what will make you happy? I want to do that and then doing it. In the same way as the bride of Christ, as one who is the spouse of the king, so to speak, let's find out what pleases him and do it. And we're able to clearly walk away understanding that the commands, the prescriptive elements of the law of Moses is not that. That is not going to be looming over my head and your head when we're walking through life on a daily basis going, Wondering if I'm really pleasing God with what I'm doing, and which of these commandments is moral and which ones not, and which ones am I supposed to obey, and which ones am I not supposed to obey? Because I see Christians that like wear clothing and cut beards and eat pork, and and then, but so, but, but murder still sounds wrong. We don't have to go through that process of trying to discern which is which. We are simply bound by the royal law of love. The law of Christ. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack what that means. We're going to keep moving through the Sermon on the Mount where I believe Jesus illustrates and draws contour lines, giving us a, a beautiful picture of what love looks like. Because here's the deal. I can say, "One, the law of love. Go love. How do you define love? I can be a total jerk to somebody and say, well, I'm good. I'm just following love. I'm loving you know? um, Well... Let's give some shape and some definition to love. And I believe that Jesus is going to do that for us in the next few weeks. So don't miss that. Come back next week and we'll move forward in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus paints a picture of love and therefore a picture of life in the kingdom as we explore what it means.